Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. been given or are familiar with some kind of, maybe it's a Bible, maybe it's a booklet, but it's kind of organized around God's promises. Anybody familiar with those? You know, like a God's promises Bible or a, 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 you know, a book or something like that. Interesting thing about those is they primarily focus on things that we want, right? God's promises, they're, they're the things. And I, and I think what's interesting is that Part of what we, we tend to do because I think of our nature is that I don't know if anyone's ever published uh, a book called God's Worst Promises <laughs> or like God's, God's Negative Prod- Promises for the Graduate. I mean, how many of you got that when you graduated high school or, you know, that kind of thing? Um, but there's, there's some promises in the Bible which, which we love, we cling to, we hold on to and are really encouraging. And then there's some promises that we are kind of like, God, you don't have to keep that one. You can go back on your word and I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna even remember it. I will let you off the hook. I think one of Jesus' worst guarantees or promises is in John chapter 15, and, and he says this to his disciples. He says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which is interesting because he says, if they persecuted me, which we find a definitive answer to that. So this if-then statement Jesus makes, the if part's true. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But, and here's the thing that he wants to sober his disciples with, but they will do all these things to you on account of my Name. They will do these things to you because you carry and you bear my name. Because they don't know the one who sent me. That is Jesus' description and summary of the world in which we live until he returns. Like we can't fix it. He says, This is a promise. You will be persecuted if I was persecuted. And he said, these things will happen to you because of my name, because the world and its system does not know the one who sent me. And here's the thing, no one, no one enjoys suffering. Even people who are always suffering because they do all kinds of not smart things, they don't enjoy suffering either. No one does. Now, most people across the globe recognize that suffering is normal. Most people on this planet, in, in most cultures, recognize that suffering is a normal thing. But in a lot of ways, in Western culture, where we live and we've grown up, we've so glorified the values of safety, comfort, and convenience, because just try to find something in our value structure, in our culture, that is not founded on safety, convenience, and comfort. We've so valued that that anything less is akin to a human's right, human rights violation. Like, I'm not safe, so 
there's something wrong that needs to be fixed, or I'm not comfortable, or this isn't convenient for me. There's something definitively wrong that has to be corrected. That's what we've grown up. And, and I think this has bled into and over into the people of God and redefined our expectations to change what Jesus told us to expect, and we've redefined our expectations to what we actually have been told and we want to believe to be true. And I'm not talking about just like health, wealth, and prosperity churches. I'm talking about all churches. Even the most conservative, literal churches, even the churches that would say, you know, when the Bible says, Jesus says, I'm the door, they're like, he's a literal wood door. Even those churches have stepped into this place and, and, and there is an unspoken idea that God somehow promises to protect us from suffering. And you just look at our behavior, the way we try to insulate ourselves and the way we try to fix, we, we, we try to legislate suffering so it goes away. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so there's this real reality. I mean, just look at the church, not, not just any church, but I mean, look at our church and how we've responded to the pandemic we kind of have had this attitude to various degrees that if we pray and fight back hard enough, we will turn the tide and get what we want. And it will be comfortable, safe, and convenient for us again. And, and, and so, see, here's the thing, and I want, I want to be really clear with this. For, the follow, for followers of Jesus, the Bible promises suffering for our faith and for the kingdom of God And you can push back on this, but I believe that the comfortable and privileged experience that we have had is an anomaly and it, is, it has had a regressive impact on our maturity and our transformation. I would say communities that have suffered are typically more mature and especially when those communities are focused on Jesus, are more transformed than communities that have not suffered. And I'm in a community that has suffered very little. And I use the term very little very liberally because I can probably say not at all. <laughs> and, and, and so one of the things uh, that hopefully you got when you came in, and if you didn't, you can get it on your way out. There's a, a note page this week. We don't always hand these out, but um, on the back of it, um, some things that I'm not gonna talk through today, but some things that maybe you can kind of touch on this week and do a little bit of your own study of what scripture teaches about suffering, how significantly connected it is to our maturity and transformation in Christ. So some things that we need to know about suffering, some statements that I, that I wrote down and, and have some, some scripture that you can get into the context of that and, and look at what we need to understand and know about suffering that, that does kind of butt up against our redeveloped expectations. This morning, we've got a passage where the apostles and the early church faced their first significant physical persecution in the New Testament. We, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that first kind of inkling of persecution where Peter and John were arrested, but, but the religious leaders had no real legal basis to hold them, so they let them go, but they gave them a court order so that they could get them next time. 
if they persist in their behavior. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter five, and I'm gonna start reading in, in verse 12. And we're just gonna read through this and talk through it this morning. And so it says in verse 12, it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. Now speaking of the community around them in Jerusalem, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What that's saying is, is remember last week, we ended with great fear was upon the community because this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, fell dead after lying to the Holy Spirit as Peter describes it. And so what, what this is describing is that word went out around Jerusalem, not just among the believers, but among the community there. And, and it says that none of the rest dared join them, that there was, this, there was this cautious watching of the early church in this moment because people were at this place of saying, whoa, whoa, this, this is serious. Did you hear that that, that, that group of people who, who talk about Jesus, that there was a couple that lied about something and they died? So people were talking about that, then people were kind of cautious, but watching, and it, but it says that they weren't cautious and rejecting or cautious and they dismissed them. It says basically that they were cautious, but the people held them in high esteem. They were like, this is a group like we've never seen before. They seem to have integrity and they, the way they treat each other is unlike any community I've ever seen before. And so they were a little bit hesitant and fearful, but it says in verse 14, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So even that, that bit of hesitation wasn't enough to keep the people away from submitting and surrendering to Jesus Christ on the word of the apostles and the growth and the community of the early church. Kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if people were kind of looking at the church and saying, okay, did you hear that couple that died that lied? I mean, I lie a lot, but, but man, I really want that kind of community and, and, I, and I, really want, I really want what they seem to be saying. So I guess I'm gonna risk it. I'm gonna risk becoming a part of this group, even though it's a little bit scary because I'm not sure, but it seems like it might be worth the risk to become a part of this Jesus-following community. It says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. Now, Luke doesn't say that Peter's shadow was healing people, but the mentality and what was going on, God's work was so evident and so powerful and so frequent that people were, were kind of like, well, maybe one of the apostles will walk by and even the mere shadow, even, even being in their presence, God's power will flow out of them and I will receive some kind of benefit from what God is doing. It says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So not only do you have word spreading in Jerusalem and, and people being drawn to Jesus, but now you've got people from surrounding villages coming to Jerusalem to see what's happening, which is kind of cool because it, it goes with what Jesus said about you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. 
And so not everyone was excited about what was happening, though. Verse 17 says, but the high priest rose up, and, and we are familiar with the high priest as we've tracked through the high priest, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Jerusalem, the, the, the council that was there in Jerusalem, the temple, and all of that, those people, that's what we're talking about. And all who were with him, that is part of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. They're filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in a prison. Remember, we, we talked about how when we become believers, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but we are not always filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, we have to be pursuing the Spirit and being filled daily and hourly. What were the, what were the priests filled with? Jealousy, not the Spirit. We can be filled with that. And what's interesting is, is it says that they were filled with jealousy. They were angry. Why? Because these people who previously they identified as unlearned and, 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 and that they were with Jesus, they were taking attention away from them. They were losing their power and authority within the community. And even when we have good motives, when we have power and authority, it is a very short step to go from using it for the benefit of what God has given us that power and authority for and using it to simply protect our own power and authority. Very few people can successfully have power and authority and not end up using it only to just simply protect their power and authority. And so, and so not only were the religious leaders concerned about losing their power and authority, they were concerned about, about issues being raised. And, and it says that, you know, that, that there, was, there was potential riots in the city if they had made a rod move against these Jesus followers because, you see, they had this agreement with Rome that things would be calm and, and, and orderly. And if this began to, to become something that brought disorder then they would lose their power that they had from Rome. I think what's interesting is, is that the leaders of Israel at this time believed less in the power of God and more in the power of violence and prison to accomplish goals. Think about that for a second. The very leaders of Israel believed less in the power of God than they did in the power of prison and violence. Does that describe us as God's people? Do we believe more in legislation, in prison, and forcing people to do things than we believe in the power of God to do things? So, so then, these leaders, religious leaders were jealous and so it says they put them into a public prison, which they had grounds to do this time because they had made some made some rules and mandates and stuff when they, when they dealt with Peter and John previous to this. And so, so it goes on, and they're, so now they're in prison for the night, and in the morning, they'll catch up with the council. But it says, but during the night, in verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to, all, to the people all the words of this life. Now, I'll be honest, my brain in reading that an angel showed up in prison and 
brought them out of prison. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but I'm imagining that the, that the angel showed up and then opened up his cloak and there's a tattoo of the prison schematics. And basically um, he was like, okay, see, here's the prison schematics. There's a gate and a guard and that's pretty much it. So it was a small tattoo. Um, but I don't know, I can't, I can't get beyond prison break and watching that back, you know, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but that's all I can think about. I think that it was, it was the Archangel Michael Schofield. So anyway, gotta let that go. Um, so this angel comes and, and, and brings them out of prison and, and says to them to do exactly what Jesus told them to do before he ascended. He says, go back to the temple and proclaim Jesus. Be witnesses, be witnesses in the temple. And, and so they go. It says, and they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the doors are open, tells them to go be witnesses, and they obeyed. And, and so then, now it's morning. And, and in, verse, in verse 21, it says, or in verse uh, partway through verse 21, it says, now when the high priest came, because they all went to bed, got some sleep, they were excited about the next day, and the high priest was kind of like, ooh, I've got a surprise for the council tomorrow. We've got, we've got these troublemakers back, and now we have grounds to prosecute. And, and, so, and so this is gonna be a great meeting in the morning. And so it says, now the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, probably 70 individuals again. That's the council, over 70 individuals all the Senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Go bring, go bring those guys to us. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Okay, the scripture clearly says the angel came and opened the prison doors and they walked out. Like this wasn't like they saved their spoons and tunneled and then somebody walked in like, they're gone. And they moved the dresser and there was you know, a hole in the wall. It was that they walked out the gate, but then when the guards go to get them, no one knows that they're gone. The guards who were there all night don't know that they were gone. So I don't know what God did. I don't know if he blinded them. I don't know if he made them fall asleep. I don't know if he erased their memory. I don't know what happened. But the guards go to get the, the prisoners and they open the locked door and there's no one inside. And, and, and so then it says, it says, now the captain of the temple, and remember that the captain of the temple guards is the second highest rank in Israel at the time. High priest, captain of the temple guard. The captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words and they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. You would think at this time there is a, cause for pause because they hear that there's no one there and then they get word right after that. It says, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now again, it seems like at this moment, let's, let's start to add up what we're seeing as maybe the religious leaders in Israel. You're seeing that that these people are, are proclaiming Jesus, a resurrected Jesus that a bunch of people say that they've seen. 
They've been arrested. They're unlearned individuals. They just know that they've been with Jesus. They continue to defy their orders by continuing to witness and proclaim the name of Jesus and tell of the works that God is doing. And now they get arrested a second time and they are suddenly gone from the prison and no one knows what happened. And they're actually back in the temple doing the very thing that they did the night before when they were arrested. At some point, don't you think that you would kind of say, okay, is there something going on here? Like, is God doing something? Do we need to pause and ask ourselves, is something happening that we might be on the wrong side of? So it says, this is what they did. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So here's what's interesting. They, they found the disciples in the temple doing exactly what they did before, but the religious leaders, the most powerful people in Israel were afraid to go and grab them by force because they were afraid that the people would react poorly, riot, and stone them because good things were happening. God seemed to be on the move. So they go and they arrest them hesitantly. <laughs> like they go, to, they go to the disciples and they say, uh, can you guys come with us? Please don't make a scene. Could you just walk with us like we're friends? Because we'd like to take you to the council because they want to talk to you about what you've been doing. And so they bring them back. Here's what's interesting. And I think it's something we need to recognize and understand because it's something that's very foreign to us. The apostles, the people of God, are free, but they are not safe. The apostles got released from prison. They were freed from prison, but then they were arrested again. At, at no point were they safe. See, God's people are never safe. Safety is not an inheritance of Jesus' disciples, only witnesses. But we get that mixed up, I think, and we get that a little confused because we like to believe that if we're following Jesus, we're safe. And I'm not saying this to cause a crisis or scare you or, or make anyone panic. But here's the thing. A follower of Jesus will never be safe in this lifetime. We are free, but we're not safe. We have the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ, but we are not safe because we live in a world that is against God. And until Jesus returns, no matter where we are, no matter what country we live in, no matter what's happening around us, we are not safe. And when we put safety as our pursuit and our ultimate value, then we are actually walking away from the kingdom of God. And, and, and so th there's this reality that, that the disciples were experiencing that they were free in Christ, they were free to obey, but they were not safe in that moment. And, and so then there in, in verse 27, the story continues. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And remember that this is a pretty, pretty intimidating situation because you've got about 70 people in a half circle and the apostles who were arrested then go kind of go where everyone can see them and they're seeing everyone's faces. So it says, when they brought them, the high priest questioned them saying, 
We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. So they get confronted by the chief priest, the high priest, and they say two things which are really interesting. One, they say, you violated our court order that we gave you. We gave you a court order that is binding and, and legally actionable that you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. And so now we have the authority to arrest you and to punish you, which we didn't have last time, but now we do. And then they said this, which is interesting. They complained a bit. They said, you bring this man's blood upon us, speaking of Jesus, which is really interesting. Why? Because that didn't originate with the disciples. If you go back to the arrest and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, let me read a couple verses. It says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, that, that when he interviewed Jesus and really can't find any grounds to punish him, he offers to release a prisoner, kind of a, 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 a Jewish uh, zealot, kind of loyalist, or Jesus. And it says, when, when Pilate finds he's getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It says, all the people answered. Now understand, in the context of what was going on there, there was all the crowd of people and they were being led by this group of people, these religious leaders. They were being led by the Sadducees and Pharisees in that time and they were being moved in a direction by them while they were standing before Pilate. It says, all the people answered, including led by, propelled by, motivated by these chief priests who are now talking to the disciples, they answer, his blood be on us and our children. So wait, who's blaming them for Jesus' blood? They are blaming themselves. They actually took the blame. They took the credit for Jesus' death. And now, because it's inconvenient, they're trying to rewrite what happened, and they're saying, you're blaming us for Jesus' death. But wait, didn't you just say his blood be on us and our children? Let's, let's not talk about who killed who. Let's, let's forget that then. You know, let's, let's not worry about that. Let's just move on from that. And so, so here it's no longer convenient for the leaders, so they start blaming the apostles. So Peter responds. Peter says this. We must obey God rather than, than men. Previously in his encounter with these people, he said, you decide who we should obey, God or men, but we need to do what we've seen. We need to be witnesses. This time he doesn't leave it as a question. He makes a statement. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom, in your own words, you killed by hanging him on a tree. God, though, exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter does exactly what he's been doing, and he says, we must obey God, not you, and, by the way, Jesus is king. And he says, he also gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So he's kind of, in a polite way, but a very definitive way, letting them know that they do not obey the actual God they claim to obey. 
And so it continues on. And the violence escalates in this moment, which is our nature when we don't get the result that we want, we escalate. And oftentimes, rather than relying on the power of God to get something done and the tools he's given us and ordained, like prayer and fasting, meditation on scripture, being generous, we escalate to violence. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So it's a pretty intense moment. You've got a group of 70 people who now are enraged and want to kill the people in the center. Verse 34 says, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while because he wanted to have a talk with everyone. Gamaliel has great wisdom and I would say political savvy here in this moment. A little bit about Gamaliel, he was a Pharisee, he was a grandson of a guy named Hillel, who was one of the, the main Jewish schools were named at the school of Hillel. Uh, it was more of a moderate school in Israel. Saul, later the Apostle Paul, he was Gamaliel's student. In fact, Gamaliel was so respected and loved that when he died, the Jews said that the glory of the law departed with him. That's, that's how honored and, and, and pursued Gamaliel was. Like he was a big deal. So he speaks, he says, in this moment where everybody wants to kill the apostles, he says, everybody stop, dismiss them. I wanna have a conversation with the elite leaders of Israel. And so Gamaliel speaks, and it's interesting what he says. He says, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the day of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Interesting is that there were a number of rebellions like this. In fact, there were 40 people named Judas during that time who led rebellions. So we're not really sure which Judas we're talking about, but there was a lot of people who led rebellions and they all came to nothing. It says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Which I think he is mostly right there. Now he's talking about plans and undertakings that fail pretty quick. There are false religions and movements that claim God is behind them that still exist today. Buddhism, Mormonism. But they will ultimately cease because they are not built on the truth and the foundation of Jesus Christ. So he's right that if they are, but they will have some staying power. They could be around for a while. But then he goes on to say, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And he's absolutely accurate. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. 
So here's what's interesting about what Gamaliel does. In some ways, we, we can think of Gamaliel as a guy who seems to be following God in the moment. But I don't believe that's actually what he's doing because there's something specific that you would do if you were following God in the moment. You see, Gamaliel listened but didn't actually hear. He saw but he didn't actually perceive. The call of Jesus is come follow me and we have to obey that. If he had actually listened and heard and saw and perceived, he would have said, I will follow Jesus. But he didn't. He responded with wait and see, a compromise that hedged his bet and protected his power. Here's one of the things that we need to recognize and understand. Politicians always wait and see. Priests obey. Politicians wait and see. Priests obey. There is this distinction between what politicians do and what priests do. What those who are politically motivated and priestly motivated. And this is so evident in what we've been talking about. Politicians woo the heart of men. Priests woo the heart of God. And I think that the church is full of political Christians rather than priestly Christians on many levels. And we've got to repent from that. How many of us often wait and see rather than just obey? Well, let's see how that works out. I mean, I know Jesus says this, but, and I'm going to obey, but I just need some time. That's a politician. That's what they do. Jesus says that we are priests. We are a priestly nation. We are the priesthood of believers. We obey. We are not the political brotherhood of believers. We're a priesthood. And so here's what they do, because they don't really fully listen to Gamaliel. They kind of do. But you've got to remember that this is a group of people who were so enraged they wanted to kill them on the spot. And so it says, so they took it as vice, and when they had called in the, the apostles, they beat them. Probably the more specific word there is they flogged them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. We need to understand what happened because it is very weighty and I, and I believe it is very significant for us. What it is describing there is a flogging of 40 minus one lashes where they would be whipped on their back and their chest with a three-strand strap of calf hide. So every hit is like three. And the reason it was 39 minus one was because the Old Testament said that you could not go more than 40 lashes in any one time. And so the way they, they did it was they decided, hey, what if we lose count and we do an extra one? We don't wanna be sinning when we're beating someone. So we'll do 39, so that way we have a margin of error of one, so that we're safe 
while we are violently beating someone. And there's a reality that, that during this type of flogging, victims were often, oftentimes, regularly left close to death, if not actually died from blood loss. And they say to them, after they've done this, to all of the apostles, they say, stop talking about Jesus or this will happen again. We can do this all day. And we need to recognize what's going on here and the conditions that they are under. Externally, the apostles have been ruthlessly beaten. And just think about this for a second. These were no, like, half committed to beatings. Have you seen enraged people who want to do something? Well, if I can't kill them, I get to at least beat them. Do you think that their hearts and passions were in beating them full bore? Absolutely. And so externally, they were ruthlessly beaten, they were bloody. They most definitely needed assistance to get from where they were in the temple to their homes because you don't walk away from a beating like that. So they needed the assistance of the community of God to get from where they were to where they were going. And they were shamed in public all because they told the story of Jesus. Because they told the story of Jesus. Internally, they were absolutely, most definitely filled with the Holy Spirit and they were overflowing with gratitude and joy in the midst of this situation, which is, I don't have a category for that. Here's, here's what, look, look, what it, look what the text says. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. <clears throat> Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. We need to sit in that for a moment. Can you even imagine rejoicing because you were just horribly abused and mistreated. And you took that to, to say that you were worthy of the name of Jesus. Before we assume we understand what's happening or that we've somehow participated in any of this, they did not complain about what had happened. They didn't condemn those who wronged them. And they didn't confer on how to change their situation. They were fully focused and rejoiced seeing this as God approving them as worthy of Jesus. If suffering is what it takes, are you interested in being worthy in, of the name of Jesus? If that's what it costs. Do you wanna be worthy of the name of Jesus if it means that you will be horrifyingly mistreated? to the point where you need someone to help you get home. As I said, I don't have a category for this. I've been 
mistreated in a significant, I've not been mistreated in a significant way that I could even have the opportunity to rejoice because of it. But I have complained about things that display my immaturity in light of this passage. It's interesting, I, I was even thinking about how much, how much I even on a consistent basis am filled with the Holy Spirit and am thinking of Jesus in, in moments. This, this weekend, my brother-in-law and I went to Levitt Lake to, to camp overnight and we, we stopped at Kennedy Meadows for lunch and ended up at a table with a, with a guy from Norway who's hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and talked with him, had lunch with him, had a great conversation. And then we, we left. I, 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 I decided I felt like I wanted to pay for his meal, so I paid for his meal. He was really grateful and appreciated it. And then we said, okay, we'll be safe, and we left. And it didn't even in the moment cross my mind to say, can I pray for you for the rest of your journey? And I don't know what's worse. Being afraid or hesitant to speak about Jesus to someone or that not even crossing your mind? I can tell you that during that lunch, I was not filled with the Holy Spirit. I was filled with the excitement of going and getting away and camping and doing a lot of other things but I wasn't filled with the Spirit. Because if I was, as we've talked about before, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit proclaim Jesus and speak of the works that God is doing. So what does this passage awaken in you? Repentance, gratitude, fear, embarrassment, confidence? Have you ever suffered for the kingdom of God and responded with deep gratitude and visible joy that you would be worthy to participate in the work of Jesus? Do you even see suffering as being counted worthy or have you redefined what God considers making us worthy? Like we so often, we need to transition here from, from looking at what's happening in the world around us and saying this is being done to us to I am being counted worthy of the name of Jesus. We've gotta stop running away. We've gotta stop feeling bad for ourselves and how we're in a hard place and start saying, I am being counted worthy of the name of Jesus and we need to walk away from that rejoicing that God has spoken that truth to us. Or are we just too busy meddling in other things far from God's kingdom to even see what God's doing? Again, be careful not to cheapen the sacrifice of those who've gone before us by labeling suffering for, for being foolish or immature or using worldly methods for spiritual gain as if we're suffering for Jesus and his kingdom. I would guess that the, the worst suffering we have experienced is we're just being jerks about Jesus rather than suffering for Jesus' name. You see, the apostles walked away rejoicing. Without joy, there is no true experience of the gospel, even though suffering is present. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And it says every day, even with their slow healing of their bodies 
and painful wounds, they did not cease teaching and preaching the story and the station of Jesus. And I bet they didn't even have ibuprofen. It's just amazing to me that there's days that I can't even be kind to people because I'm too tired or frustrated. I live a very comfortable life without thoughts of any cost for my faith in Jesus. And so this morning, the challenge is this. We are called into joyful suffering in the name of Jesus for his mission. But we so quickly seek relief from suffering. Is it possible, would you even consider this question, is it possible that we are rejecting a grace God is finding us worthy of? when we insulate ourselves and run away from difficult things. When we try to make our culture and our world reflect us and our conveniences, our comfort and our safety, rather than endure the shame of suffering and persecution, seeing that as God counting us worthy of the name of Jesus. Only the Spirit can make this possible. Will I use my power and influence to avoid suffering or will I trust that God is doing a work in me that could never be achieved otherwise? You see, neither humanity nor supernatural powers will stop God's work in the world. Therefore, we can faithfully obey God and make disciples through the worst of circumstances. At the end of the, the scriptures, there's a, there's a statement of how God's people defeat the evil in the world. And frankly, we're not using that power today very well. It says in Revelation 12, 11, it says, and they conquered him, the devil and all of the evil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. We love our lives far short of death. And I know that because we don't actually conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And our testimony is that God is sufficient in the midst of persecution and suffering and whatever comes our way. You see, the way God has given to us, no matter what empire we live in or what rights we are afforded, the things he's given to us to carry out his mission and conquer the world is the sacrifice of Jesus and our denial of self and carrying our cross. And maybe you're better than me, but I have not lived my life this way. Right now, the Spirit, I believe, is calling us into a moment of repentance that leads to a lifetime of rejoicing. But are you and I humble enough to lose face to obey whatever the Spirit is calling you to do right now, today? What are you filled with? Yourself or the Holy Spirit? I don't wanna miss what God is doing. I don't wanna let this moment go without an opportunity to think and reflect. So over the next few minutes, what I'm, I believe God is leading us toward is whatever the Holy Spirit is dealing with you, I don't know. Maybe it's embarrassment for the way you've lived. Maybe it's confidence in God's power. Maybe it's repentance because you've rejected God's grace of suffering that reminds you that you are worthy of the name of Jesus.
Maybe the Spirit's speaking to you this morning, right now. And I would say in the next few moments, I would encourage you to do whatever the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. Obey the Spirit right now. I don't know what he's telling you, but obey. Maybe it's you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need to say something. Maybe you need to sit and quiet and repent. Maybe you need to recognize God's favor in your life because he's been reminding you how worthy you are of the name of Jesus. But don't be a politician and just wait this out and see where it goes. Obey, because that's what priests do. Holy Spirit, come. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.